All right, so um, this is going to be another sermon on baptism. Yeah, number like, in the last two years, like, like eight sermons on baptism. And there's just so much that every time I look at another passage, there's more and more and more. So, um, uh, yeah, so uh, our baptism service again is next week. And I think right now there's about six or seven people getting baptized, and it's awesome. And it's... Uh, it's an incredibly beautiful service, and uh, I'll, I'll teach on baptism again next week, right before baptizing people. And so, um, again, to reiterate a little bit of what Steve said, um, if you're moved by any of this and, and you think this is for you and, and you need what, what, what Paul here calls newness of life, um, then uh, we want to invite you into that. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in, and, and there's a lot of contextual uh, first century stuff in here that I think is incredibly beautiful, and there's a lot of stuff that I think the, um, the modern Christian evangelical, usually church, um, has absolutely forgotten about history. Um, and so I try, to, I try to bring that out because there's some amazing, beautiful stuff that the original readers of these texts would have heard that, that we rarely hear. And so uh, let's pray. Father, we come here and... Uh, we are looking for peace and for uh, answers and wisdom. Uh, we don't just want knowledge. We don't just want to understand things. We, we, want to, we want wisdom. We want to take that knowledge and apply it. Um, we want so desperately to, to know the kind of life that, that is available to us, that you have opened up to us. We want to learn how to embrace it. We want to move towards that. I ask that uh, you would remove all the distractions of our morning, that you would push them all aside and allow us to sort of affirm, yes, there are things that, that, that are weighing down upon us that are difficult that we have brought in here and affirm that they are here and, and then kind of set them aside for now so that we can be present with you. Um, and so that when we pick them up again, we'll, maybe, maybe we'll have a different way of handling it. Maybe we'll see something different about it. Maybe we'll see it as maybe a gift even. And so uh, give us perspective, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Make your grace known to us. Give us peace and mercy. Allow me to speak clearly and communicate clearly and remember the things that I've studied. And, and um, allow all of us to be uh, graced by your presence this morning. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, I'm going to start here in verse 1. Um, in order to really understand this verse, you have to understand what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. The book of Romans, ha- uh, he's constantly going back to what I call sort of, it's, it's sort of a literary device. There's this back and forth conversation. Uh, the best way I can describe it um, is like those old cartoons where you have somebody standing there and like say Paul, and, and then on one shoulder there's like a, like a Paul in white robes and on the other shoulder there's like a Paul in like tights that's red. You know what I mean? And, and they're both kind of speaking into his ear. So a lot of Romans, when you read it, there's this back and forth conversation as if Paul is writing out a conversation that might be had in real life with the people he's writing this letter to, the book of Romans. It's a really unique writing. Um, and so there's a lot of back and forth. And the end of the previous chapter, the end of chapter 5, um, ends with this, um, with this sort of statement where he says, well, they're talking about sin, and someone says that sin abounds, and Paul I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use N.T. Wright's sort of loose translation from uh, 
um, from his own sort of translation here. He says, where, where sin abounds, like wherever sin is, grace, and if you, if you translate this into English, it says, grace superabounds. So like, wherever this is, you're going to find a lot of this. And wherever, if it's over here, you're going to find sin over here, you're going to find a lot of grace over here, because that's how God is. God is drawn towards these places and offers grace. Um, and then there's the logical question where he sort of goes back and forth and he starts off with this question to himself that maybe the, so this is really a conversation about what we have been talking about, the fruits of the spirit, living by the, by the spirit and living by the flesh. And so the little Paul in red wants to live by the flesh. It speaks into his ear and says, um, uh, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And there's this question that um, Paul asks him. And, and so then he has this, this, this completely opposite answer where Paul is shocked at what he's just heard, um, that this question would be raised. Um, and so there's sort of this argument that follows that goes like this. Let me summarize this whole uh, verse 1 through 11. He says, so the flesh nature kind of says, so you've just said that God's grace is, is, is great enough and big enough and powerful enough to forgive every sin, to forgive every sin. And Paul says, yes, Exactly. And then, and then the other Paul, the flesh Paul, says, so basically what you're saying is that, that, that God's grace is like the greatest gift in the world because it absolutely sets you free from all of the things that would ever enslave you. And then, and then Spirit Paul said, yes, living by the Spirit Paul, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And then and it's sort of like a chap's been laid, and then, and then flesh Paul sort of says this. He says, well, if that's so, then why don't we just go on sinning? Why don't we just go on doing whatever we've been doing? The more we sin, the more grace will abound, and sin doesn't matter because God's going to forgive it anyways. And in fact, we can go even farther than that and say that sin is a really good thing because the more you sin, the more grace abounds. And so I just want to give grace everywhere, and so I'm just going to go sin everywhere. It's basically what he's saying. That's not even basically, it's like literally what he's saying. Um, and Paul, upon sort of hearing this flesh side of himself, sort of this conversation back and forth, Paul recoils in horror. So he's like, <gasps> like what? And, and, and so then Paul says this, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now, um, in modern-day English, it's a very heavy doctrinal theological answer, right? Um, it seems to fit in with like a, a system, and it sounds like it's been being proclaimed by somebody who's sort of higher up and down and, and, and hard to sort of grasp and wrap our minds around. Um, but actually, in the first century, the people who heard this um, here's what they would have heard. So we can basically go on sinning now, right? We can do whatever we want, and it's good to sin because it brings more grace about, right? And then Paul says, no, because you've been baptized. And everyone listening today says, maybe I've just not studied enough to understand why that's a good answer. But people in the first century hear the answer, and they're like, oh, you're right. Why is that, though? Why, why, would they hear some, why would they be so moved by the answer, because you've been baptized? And why are we less moved by this? Um, because there's a lot of ancient context to baptism that we have forgotten. That we, that we, I think now there's a lot of scholarship where people are teaching more about the things that we might have been overlooking all these years in our, in our attempts to be good 
modern people and take the entire scriptures and, and narrow it down to these simple little, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, poof, and you get this. That's a consumeristic mindset. We're going to make it as easy to digest as possible. But in reality, there's this context where, where you could say, people, people would ask, well, why can't I just sin all I want? Paul would say, because you've been baptized. And they would be like, oh, yeah, you're right. What is that? And how do we get that? Well, um, we really need to look at baptism as the original audience would have heard it. Because Paul's audience, so Paul's audience was in Rome, particularly. I'm, I'm talking about the book of Romans. Paul's audience was sort of split half Jewish half Greek, and they all became Christians. And so you have this church of half Jewish people, half Greek people worshiping together and now followers of Christ. When they entered into the church, um, every single person in the Christian church in the first century came from another religion. You weren't born into Christianity because it didn't exist yet at the time. So um, all of them, everyone who came to Christianity in the first century, so basically when you read the scriptures, you're reading that context. Everyone is a first generation Christian that came from another religion. It's important to remember. Um, so each one of them are coming into the church, and they're all being baptized into Christianity, into the church. Now, something you may not realize is this would, this would not have been the first time that these people would have been baptized. Most religions in the first century and before had some form of baptism, and it had a heavy meaning to them. It had a heavy-weighted meaning to the point where Paul could simply answer because baptism, and they'd be like, oh. Um, because it meant something even before Christianity to them. Um, and so I, I need to open this up and sort of explain it all to you. Now, um, okay, so where am I going to start? Okay, so first off, I'm going to talk about what this meant, what the Jews, when Paul writes this, what, what the Jewish people would have heard, and then what the Greeks would have heard. And you're going to see sort of why this is such a good argument for Paul to make. So we're going to start off with... Um, with uh, the Jewish understanding of what Paul was saying. So when, when a person entered into the, originally entered into the Jewish religion, um, let's say someone who wasn't born into it, a, a Greek or, or whoever, enters into the Jewish religion, they would have been baptized into it. Um, again, when you entered into most religions in, in, in the first century, there was a ritual whereby you would enter into this community. You didn't just come in and sign a piece of paper and walk in. There was a ritual that was a public thing. So the Jewish people, it kind of went like this. If, if you wanted to become um, um, a Jewish convert, um, you would enter by, by baptism, and the ritual went like this. The person that was to be baptized would first off, um, it's really interesting, their nails, their, their nails would all be cut, so like mani-pedi. Um, and then they would, they would have to cut their hair, so they would look different all over. Um, and then they would... They would remove all clothing, um, all jewelry, anything that was not what they were born with, and they would enter into the water, um, and they would, before they dunked their head into the water, there would be sort of three men standing around them proclaiming sort of a prayer and a benediction and blessings over them, and then they would be dunked in the water, and then they would, when they come out of the water, um, this is the fascinating part, they would be addressed as a baby, as a child. Oh, bring the baby up out of the water. Bring the baby up here. Clothe the child. Um, and you would be addressed as if you were a fresh newborn child. Um, for some reason, I think of Will Ferrell on SNL years ago. Um, but like, this is how you would be addressed. Bring the child over here. Um, and it gets even more interesting because this, if you read ancient writings of the Jewish people, you actually see that just how important this was to them, sort of this rebirth, being reborn, 
Um, and you see some of this language brought into the Christian church as well. Um, this was so important to them that actually someone who had a child, like a son, and then was baptized into the Jewish faith, um, if, they had a, if he had another son, that next son would then be his firstborn son. That's how important it was to them. So you weren't just being addressed as sort of someone who joined the faith. You were um, basically completely regenerated, like a new person. And your past life, the negative things would not be brought up again. Um, And then um, this also means that all of your sins that you have committed would be canceled because that person is not in front of us now. This new person is here in front of us. And so when Paul is answering this question, and they say, why can't I just go on doing whatever I want as I always have been? And Paul says, because you've been baptized, if you're Jewish, you understand exactly why he would say this. Now, if you're Greek, the Greeks had their own sort of uh, method of baptism. And again, as so many things were, it was centered around the theater in, in, in the first century. Um, and you'll notice that Jesus, when he's talking all the time, uses words like hypocrite, which was a theater word, and he uses all kinds of phrases that refer to sort of um, the plays, if you will. If you're reading in context, you'll see this. Um, Now, um, let's talk about the Greek religions. For the the Greeks, when they heard Paul say this, it also made a lot of sense. They had, there were, there were, the only forms of of religion, real religion in, in the Greek life were these religions called the mystery religions. By and large, everyone, when you walked into the, everyone would regularly go to the temple and offer sacrifices, but if you actually wanted to be part of the religion centered around whatever god your local deity was that you worshipped, there would be a process, a ritual that you would undergo um, that sometimes, uh, it, it always sort of looked like baptism. Sometimes water would be used, but not always. Sometimes sand would be used, and sometimes you'd be buried and then, and then dug back up. Terrifying. Um, and... Sort of, uh, and so basically, these religions, they, they believe these, these sort of mysterious, these mystery religions offered, what they, they described it like this, these religions offer a release from the cares and sorrows and the fears of this earth, um, and the release was, was formed by a union with some local deity that they wanted to worship. And so, you've heard of a passion play before, um, this is like, Christians do this all the time, it's a play um, about the last three days of Jesus' life, his death, burial, resurrection, um, and believe it or not, Christians are not the first ones to do passion plays. Uh, the Greeks were actually the first people to do this. There was all these local deities, and there would be these passion plays, but only the people who were members of the mystery religion could watch them. And in these passion plays, there would be some deity who would die and be buried and, and be risen again. Um, and in order, if you wanted to watch this passion play, um, you had to undergo this initiation ritual. And everyone who was in the theater watching this particular play and everyone taking part in the play would have been through the ritual. And the ritual um, was really interesting. So first off, um, there was this long course of instruction on the inner meaning of the drama. Like, you have to understand the the hidden meaning of the drama. And there's this hidden meaning there. Um, And they would be taught that. And then they had to undergo a course of ascetic discipline. So um, here's how you're going to live after you go through the burial ritual. So you're sort of given new eyes to like see sort of the meaning of it all, and you're given a new life, a new way to live. Um, and then before they entered into the play, there was another form, part of the initiation where it was regarded sort of as a death followed by a new birth. Um, 
by which, and, and there's a Latin phrase here, that were, it, was, it was renatus en eternum, that we, where you were, renatus en eternum, reborn for eternity, right? Um, and so you can see a lot of the Paul using sort of the contextual language to, to teach the story of Christ in this, in this way, this all new way. We're like, no, so you guys have all these little stories, um, but there is one main central story, death, burial, and resurrection that is real, and that you're missing it. And so um, there's this sort of um, people who went people who went through this ritual, there would be this time where they would be called the Moratiris, and then they, that means the one who is to die. By the way, if you're, if, you, if you're in a metal band and you're looking for that name, Moratiris, the one who is to die, right? Not bad. Um, and so he was buried. So we have actually one record of this guy who says that he was the Moratiris in one, in one ceremony where he was buried up to his neck. Um, and, and above his head. So all that was showing was the, like his face. And then he would be dug up. And after he was dug up, it's very similar to the Jewish religion, um, he would be re- referred to as a child, sometimes given a new name, um, and fed with milk for like several days. That's all he could eat. So you're writing to Greeks, and they say, why can't I just go on doing what I want? Why can't I just live however I want? If, if this new idea of grace, grace was a brand new idea, um, Jesus is the originator, of, uh, the originator of this idea that had never been in this world. Um, and so this idea of grace. And they're like, well, if grace, this new thing I'm hearing about and forgiveness, if this is so big and massive, why can't I just do whatever I want and bring more grace into this world? And Paul looks at them and says, because you've been baptized. And so here's sort of how it goes. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So I want you to hear this, and I want you to picture what all of the first century readers would have heard, no matter where they came from. They all knew of some ritual by which they entered into their previous religion. And they held that ritual to be such a strong binding thing, and then they're baptized into the church, and for some reason, because we've thrown grace in the mix, they think they can just, they think it means less. And Paul says, for one who has been Set, ugh, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, oftentimes when we read that verse, in verse 8, we, we tend to picture, uh, so much of the New Testament, when we read it, we picture like the afterlife, like later. Like, but he is talking about your life now. He says the life that you live is new. You have been reborn. You are a born-again Christian. You don't live the way that you did. He says, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, and death no longer has dominion over him. He says, and that death was, it was final. When you likened yourself to Christ. So now, I mean, picture the answer. They say, why can't I go on doing whatever I want? Because you've been baptized. That's impossible. It's impossible for you to do the things that you did before because that person no longer exists. And so baptism is a really, really important ritual. Um, and it's sort of this daily gift, if you will. There are lots of things that we regularly practice in Christianity that we practice over and over and over, and we ponder them, and they have meaning, and they give us, they give us uh, sort of life. Um, and they tend to center around the passion play of Christ, right? The passion of Christ, like the, 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 the last acts that he did on this earth. I mean, um, we like to focus on 
the crucifixion. And when we focus on the crucifixion, I mean, we have these rituals that we do, right? We take communion every week here. We take the body and break it, dip it in the wine, symbolizing in the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, broken and spilled out for you. So when we talk about the crucifixion, we're talking about the method by which the world has brought healing and salvation through God's body, broken and poured out for you. And then Jesus says, and follow me. And so we know healing and salvation and reconciliation are brought about by a life that is broken and poured out for those around it. We give of ourselves. Sometimes it means suffering. It always means sacrifice. That's what it is. And so when we talk about the cross, we find all kinds of encouragement and we ritually do these things to remind us of the crucifixion. And then there is the resurrection. This is the best I could come up with. Then there's the resurrection. And the resurrection is this thing that gives us incredible hope because three days dead in the ground, right? That far gone and now alive. And so we proclaim the resurrection that if that can happen, if this can be brought back, something so far dead and gone, then anything can be fixed. So we believe in resurrection. We believe because Jesus has been resurrected that your marriage can be resurrected, your friendship, your, the spiritual life of your children, um, your purpose, um, a broken city. Injustice can be fixed. Brokenness can be healed. We believe in that because we believe in the resurrection. And we celebrate the resurrection ritually, right? We sing songs about it. Um, we pray prayers of, of repentance. And this is all like at newness. It's newness of life. Um, and every year, I mean, we, we celebrate Easter, right? And it's a celebration. And there are flowers and spring. And it's all this incredible thing. And so but there's these rituals around this. There's rituals around this. Um, and we even have rituals centered around... The manger, right? Centered around the incarnation, God entering into this world. And, and in this story, we find, we find God identifying with us. He, he's drawing near. We serve a God who's not far away and trying to keep us at bay. He's, he wants to draw closer. And so we celebrate this, you know, with Christmas, which is coming upon us, and, and we give and we give. And there's all these things that we ritually celebrate. But what about the burial? Burial is, is good news, believe it or not. It's actually part of the gospel. It's part of the good news. And so there's this sort of space where we're missing this extra thing because we have all these rituals to celebrate the incarnation and the death and the resurrection, but something has to happen between that. There is this burial. Baptism celebrates the burial. And that might sound different and, and weird to you, but the burial is incredibly important. Paul writes in, in verse 4, and he says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. He makes a point in saying, your life, you, if you were baptized, you were buried. I mean, think about the burial. There was Jesus died, and people took time to gather and wrap him. There was burial cloths, there was spices, there was a tomb that was donated, and there was this ceremony where the Jewish people would take and, and people would gather and lay him in the tomb. We don't have the details of this, but we know that it happened because it was the Jewish tradition. And they buried him at the appropriate time, and they rolled the tomb in front, and they mourned, and there's this long walk back home of mourning together, and then three days of just 
nothing. Just lostness. Just mourning. Here's where we were three days ago. Here's what it was like, and here's what it's like now. The burial is part of the gospel. Um, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that we too might walk in newness of life. You see, without the burial, there is no newness, right? I mean, you have to put things behind you. There's this um, theologian and and author named Frederick Buechner and and, uh, amazing, brilliant man who writes about how when he was 11 years old, um, he remembers being in, in his bedroom playing with his brother and his father walks in and looks at him and smiles. He remembers what his father was wearing. He says he was wearing gray slacks and a, and a maroon sweater and looked at him and smiled, watched him for a moment and then walked out and went down to the garage, killed himself. He's 11 years old. And he said the reaction of his mother was to look at them, gather the boys together he remembers watching out the window as, as all these people were panicky in the driveway and loading him up in the ambulance and whisking him away. And his mother comes up top, upstairs and she says, he's gone and we are never going to speak of this again, ever. We will never, and he says they never did. And here's what he writes about it. He says, there was no funeral because on both of my mother's and my father's side, there was no church connection of any kind and funerals were simply not a part of the culture. He was buried in a cemetery in Brooklyn and I have... No idea who, if anybody, was present. I only know that my mother, my brother, and I were not. There was no funeral to mark his death and put a period at the end of a sentence that had been his life. And then he writes about um, what it is like to not have a mechanism by which to put something behind you and the problems that it caused. There was no closure. There was no way to process putting this part of my life in the ground and moving forward. They never mourned. They never gathered to speak of it and to find healing and to hear the perspectives of each other. There was none of it. There was no mechanism for moving past it, for ending his his father in his own mind. So I want to talk about healthy endings for a minute because if you're going to talk about burials, you have to talk about endings, healthy endings. Healthy endings require two things in particular. They require a lot of things, but the two most important things that healthy endings require, uh, the first one is a gathering of community. You have to have people who come around you and look at you and affirm that they observe what is happening. I see, I see that you are suffering. Or I see that you are changing. I see that this event is coming to an end. I affirm it. I am here, and I'm here to witness this. This is an incredibly important thing. I mean, have you ever tried to change anything in your life without telling anyone? Have you ever tried to quit drinking, to lose weight, to kick some habit, some addiction that you have? Have you ever tried to reform your life? Have you ever tried to... Um, sort of work out your theology all by yourself? How did that go? Not too well. Why? Because there is no one there to witness it. But what you find is, when you want to put the way you are behind yourself, what you have to do is you have to gather a group of people 
And you have to tell them, here's what I'm doing. This person that you see before you is not going to be here anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm burying this person. This is a huge part of change in your life. You cannot do things on your own. The community is important. Baptism is a communal ritual because you need both witnesses and cheerleaders, right? And the second thing you need for a healthy ending is a change of language. What is becomes what was. He was a good man. That was who, how things were. So what is becomes what was, and what will be becomes what is. There is an absolute change of language. And this is really important because when you speak of this thing, of this event, whatever you are changing, there has to be people who witness the change and who will now speak of it. This is how you were. That person's not here anymore, right? You were in this new thing. And so this is how things change. This is part of the burial of how things move forward. And a baptism is two things. A baptism is a funeral. Baptism is the ritual by which we celebrate the burial of Christ. It is something that people ignore so often. The burial of Christ is an important thing to understand. It should be something that you regularly sit and ponder. And you sit and you think, I have been baptized. These struggles that I'm having with my identity. These feelings of failure that I have. This baggage I've been carrying my whole life. I must remember, I've been baptized. And you find hope in that. The same way you gather and you take communion and you find hope in communion. And you find meaning and, and, and healing in communion. So, so baptism is a funeral. It is a mechanism whereby we let go of our past, of who we were, how we've been, and we, the person we no longer want to be. So it is, it is likening ourselves to Christ in his, in his burial. It is a funeral. You're putting this person behind you, and people are gathering to see it. And the second thing baptism is, is baptism is a wedding. It is an absolute wedding. Now, it is the embracing of and commitment to a new way, a new love, a new life, new ways of dwelling and being and moving throughout this world. So you are speaking of, here's who I am. I'm going to put this person behind me. And when you do, that's a person that was, and this is a person that is. And so there is no question about why can't I just go on living exactly the same way I was? Because Paul steps up and gets in your face and says, because you have been baptized. Have you forgotten? When you joined yourself to God in this way, when you stood before the community and you were baptized, you buried that person. And none of us are going to let you forget that. And we are all going to gather around you and we're going to be all up in your business and we're going to push you forward. Like this is not happening. You are not moving backwards. We just simply won't allow it. And so baptism is this confession that the old life is no more and a proclamation that new life has begun and it invites everyone into it. Again, let's read verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So maybe you are here, and, and you, what you need, and you know it, you need newness of life. This person that you are, that you have been for so long, cannot live any longer this way. What you need is a spiritual burial. 
a gathering of the body of Christ around you to affirm you have changed, you have put this behind you, you are likening yourself to Jesus in his death and, and, and likening yourselves to him in his resurrection. And when you come up out of the water, you will find newness of life. Baptism is the gift we will give you. We will help you find that newness of life. And I will not bring up who you have been. I will not bring up the offenses that, that we had before because you are not the same person. You are now reborn. And we will push you to becoming the person that you need to be. And so, baptism says tomorrow does not have to be like today. Because tomorrow, I don't have to be the same person as I am today. Baptism says I could never go on living the way that I was because that person is gone. And the community, your church, makes this desire a reality. And so baptism, what it really says is, dearly beloved, we gather here together today to say goodbye to this person. And we finally, through love and community, enter into who we were meant to be. Baptism is a gift from your church community to you. Um, Maybe this is you. Maybe you desperately need newness of life. And you have been trying to change secretly on your own. You've been hiding all of this stuff. You can't bring it out into the light. I fear that you will not find the healing that you need. Because it must be dragged out into the light. It must be laid out and say, hey, I I want all of you to know I was spiritually dead and I've been struggling and I have changed and I feel God calling me forward and I want to be baptized. I I, I want a funeral. I want to put this person to death and I want to be reborn into this new way and we as a community rally around you and we gather and we will never let you go back to who you were before. And we will drag you kicking and screaming into your sanctification. (laughs) All right? So um, maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you're just sick of it, who you've been. And you're calling out to Christ and you're saying, what I need is your death, your burial, your resurrection. Baptism, baptism, Baptism is that mechanism by which we say goodbye. And so I want to invite you next week to be baptized. You can, you can email us through the website and say, I want to be baptized, and let us know which service you want to be baptized in. Um, you can reply on the city and RSVP to the, uh, to the baptism invite. And uh, next, next week is going to be a good day. It's going to be fun. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk a little more about baptism and help you look at it from one more perspective. And if you show up and you just feel led and, and you haven't signed up, who cares? Just jump in the water with us. All right? It'll be like SeaWorld in here. It'll be awesome. (laughs) Splash zone, everything. It was wet last time. My goodness. And so we're going to take communion. Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and gather uh, the elements and spread around the room. And so we are going to, right now, do our ritual that helps us remember the death of Christ before next week we bury some people in Christ, with Christ, so that they can find newness of life. So there's two elements in communion. There's bread and there's wine. The bread is broken for you. It's the body of Christ. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, Because this is how healing is brought into the world. Healing always comes about by sacrifice of someone else. And God showed us this firsthand 
And so we follow him as followers of Christ. So our communion servers are gathering and they're spreading around the room. Um, I want to invite you, if you are a follower of Christ, come on up, take some time, pray, find something that, that, that you want to talk to God about, maybe some way you have not been living up to the calling you have received as name bearers of Christ, as Christians. Um, and take some bread, dip it in the wine, and eat it. And pray as you eat it. Uh, and, and there's two things, really. You, you need to, your prayer should be a prayer of thankfulness, that God feeds you exactly what you need. And the second should be a prayer that this spiritual food would go down and touch the places of your life that need to be touched with the gospel, that you have yet to relinquish. So let's pray. Father, thank you for what you were doing here. Bless us. Help us to change and fully repent and grow. Give us every day new eyes to see, new ears to hear. Help us grow in you more and more and more. We love you. In your name, amen. Take some time.